Hi, my name is Luke Schramm. I'm the uh, committee chair of the Special Committee on the Drugs and Law of the New York City Bar Association. Uh, I want to welcome everybody tonight, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, New York State has come a long way uh, with marijuana from 1977's decriminalization to uh, the NYPD uh, arrest campaign in the uh, 90s and early aughts uh, to uh, legalize uh, medical marijuana. Now we are preparing for uh, legalized uh, recreational marijuana, and we have a great panel tonight to speak about some of the issues that New York City will deal with uh, in uh, going forward. I want to introduce uh, our panelists tonight. Um, we have uh, Axel Bernabe, uh, who is the <clears throat> the special assistant counsel to the governor on health. Um, we have Joseph Levy, the founder uh, partner of Helbron and Levy, um, council member uh, Donovan Richards, uh, as well as <clears throat> Stephen Epstein, founding partner of uh, Barkett, Epstein, and Kieron. Uh, and uh, Jerome Levy, who's a partner at uh, Dwayne Morris. Uh, moderating tonight will be Kristen Jordan, uh, who runs the uh, cannabis practice at Newman and Ferrara. So uh, if everyone wants to give a round of applause for our panelists, uh, we'll get everything started. Thank you. Welcome, and thank you to the New York City Bar Association for hosting this panel discussion this evening. Thank you also to Luke Schramm uh, for producing this event and to the Drugs and the Law Committee the Hospitality Law Committee, and the New York City Affairs Committee for sponsoring tonight's program. I believe that discussions such as this are important as they serve, to serve as a portal to set the tone for fair business practices, provide support and legitimacy to diversity and gender equality, and provide a general roadmap for the emerging industry. I am honored to share the stage with some of the city and state's leading authorities in their respective fields, and like you, I'm eager to hear their thoughts on what legal and policy changes are necessary to transition the unregulated cannabis market to a viable, inclusive, regulated commercial industry with attainable access points. Since we have limited time this evening, our discussion will focus on cannabis business licensing, land use and zoning as it pertains to retail operations, and tax revenue implications for the city. Finally, we will hear how the governor's office is preparing for legalization. The current pending bill introduced by Senator Kruger and Assemblyperson Crystal Peakville Stokes, known as the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, or MRTA, legalizes the production, distribution, and consumption of marijuana. Further, the bill removes marijuana and marijuana products from New York's Controlled Substances Act and allows for regulation under the New York State Liquor Authority. Joseph, given your vast experience with the SLA and alcohol licensing, kindly set the stage for the challenges cannabis poses that are distinct from the licensing of alcohol. Well, that's a good question. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we don't have all of the information yet, so I can't tell you exactly how this is going to work. Um, but certainly from, a, from an infrastructure perspective and from a general licensing perspective, it's probably going to be pretty close to the way the State Liquor Authority works with new applications to, to sell liquor um, in a number of ways uh, in that there will be different tiers, different types of licensing. There will be, so in alcohol you have your wholesale licensing and you have your retail licensing and they're kept very separate. And a lot of what we're seeing throughout the country with the way that 
the cannabis licenses are being issued and applied for, um, also very separate. You have your manufacturing license, you have transportation licenses, you have retail licenses, and they're all very... Sure. Is that better? Okay. So it'll be, it'll be similar in that there'll be the different licenses separated in the different tiers like that, and it'll be similar in terms of requirements for the licenses with the actual uh, company itself, the individuals involved, uh, vetting process for the location, uh, and there will have to be a way that it fits in in the specific town, the specific municipality. There'll be involvement at a few different levels. Um, better than the way that alcohol beverage licensing works right now because that code was written a long time ago. Um, this one's gonna be drafted pretty close to now. So it's gonna be interesting and it's gonna be um, enlightening and hopefully it'll be a, a modern version of what a lot of people consider to be archaic with the, a lot of the way the liquor laws are written. Um, so I think there'll be some similarities. Whether when all is said and done, the State Liquor Authority is going to be the agency that actually does govern this, I think it's gonna be interesting to see. Um, I think that uh, the way that Massachusetts has gone with this with their own separate Cannabis Control Commission is going to be something that New York may have to look at. Um, just from a sheer bandwidth perspective, I know the State Liquor Authority is, is pretty well backed up now with their regular alcohol licenses. So. I know that when this comes, there's gonna be a lot of action, and there'll be a lot of applications, and there'll be a lot of interest. So in order to keep up with that, I think the idea and the prospect of a new agency makes a lot of sense. Um, the question is whether they can throw together the infrastructure and the agency in a timely enough manner for it to make sense. If the licensing process stays within the Liquor Authority's purview, can you give us an insight into how the community boards uh, would react to the applications? Sure, so it's an interesting question, and for anyone who's done um, alcoholic beverage licensing in New York City, the community boards do really play a big role in it. Before you can even file your application to the state agency that issues the liquor license, you have to notify the local municipality. You have to give them 30 days to respond to you before you file with the state. So in that 30 days, they can either decide they're not interested in hearing from you, uh, or they can call you into a meeting. If they call you into a meeting, there's a whole presentation to prepare, there's a questionnaire to prepare. You have to do a certain amount of community outreach <clears throat> and really vet the space and make sure that what you wanna do will work in the space, will work for the people who live next door to it, across the street, above it, things like that. And it's, it's a pretty big process and a lot of the people in the neighborhood are extremely vocal. So to the extent that there would be a similar process for the cannabis licensing, I imagine there'll be something like it. I mean, we've seen in Massachusetts, they have a similar structure in that you do need to get, you know, some sort of um, negotiated agreement with the neighborhood that you're in before you can move forward towards a certain point. You do have to do a certain amount of outreach. So there could be a similar, um, a similar process like that for community boards in New York City. Now, will it be as involved as the liquor one? Will it be the same people? Will it be a different subcommittee? Um, you know, obviously we don't know yet. So with respect to Massachusetts, we're seeing some issues with those can uh, community host agreements and the com uh, Cannabis commun uh, Commission not uh, overseeing those and reviewing those agreements. Do you think that um, the Liquor Authority would uh, be the, the agency to review those agreements or would they stay with the community boards or So it's interesting. I, I think at the very least the Liquor Authority will give some guidance because that's the process right now. With, with liquor licenses, when you seek a new liquor license, you go to these community boards, you work out your agreement, the community board then takes the resolution and sends it to the state. So the state's familiar with the process, how they're reviewed, 
what stipulations you can really hold people to and not. So at the very least, there'll be some guidance on how to deal with that stuff. Do you have any advice for potential cannabis operators in advance of legalization to uh, prepare their communities or engage their, uh, for local support? Pay lots of attention. Pay lots of attention to what people are doing. This is all like uncharted territory here. And I think to the same extent that a lot of us are paying attention to what's happening in other places, I think, you know, other people up in Albany are doing the same thing. I don't think anyone knows what the right thing to do is here, and you can't know. So we're just seeing what works and what doesn't, and I would say just pay attention and look at the models that are having success and look at similarly situated places in other states and just pay attention to what they did. So I'm interested in your insight. This is the first time I'm hearing that potentially there could be a new agency. What, what insight can you give us as to what movement there is for that um, and where, how the, the Liquor Authority stands on that issue? It's my feeling. It's my feeling that it's going to be a, a different agency. And I, like I said, my, the only reason I feel that way is because of how much um, alcoholic beverage licensing I do and how much work I do with the State Liquor Authority. Um, just my opinion is that to add this big thing onto their plate right doesn't seem like it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And um, you know all the different working groups that are talking about this right now, there's no representation from the New York State Liquor Authority in any of them. So to me, that's sort of an indication that it may not go there. Because you'd think they'd want their insight, right? Right, if it's going there. right. So securing real estate is another hurdle that operators in uh, regulated markets face. Uh, Jerry, I was hoping that you might be able to give us some uh, insight into some of the key challenges that retailers will face uh, when looking at zoning. Well, <clears throat> when looking at zoning, the uh, zoning resolution obviously uh, uh, has uh, divides the city into different uh, areas for different uses. And the appropriate use for uh, a cannabis retailer is going to be a commercial use. Uh, there probably will be no uh, serious movement towards trying to uh, put uh, site these places in residential uh, areas. Now, with the medical marijuana program, originally most of the individuals who were granted licenses were looking at what you might regard as a doctor's office model. And it was going to be a very uh, sterile medical environment. With the changes and the allowing of uh, related uh, goods to be sold, uh, it's much more now a drugstore kind of thing. It looks more like uh, uh, Walgreens than it does like your internist's office. So what you have is uh, a commercial establishment in a commercial area and it seems to me the biggest problem that people are going to have is the uh, not in my backyard uh, syndrome that what will happen is that there are a lot of people who think oh isn't it wonderful to have adult use uh, marijuana available but they're going to worry that if it's on their commercial street around the corner from where they live that there will be uh, you know lines of, of hop heads waiting around to try to uh, catch a little bit of uh, grass from some of the people coming out who maybe bought more than they needed. And they will worry about things like long lines of uh, people waiting for the store to open in the morning or uh, uh, crowds uh, on the streets of, uh, of the kind of people that they fear. And it seems to me 
that this is going to be an issue that has to be uh, has to be dealt with. Are there areas of the current zoning and land use regulations that would need to be revised in order to accommodate the industry? Well, that's an it's an interesting question. Uh, the way we see the zoning resolutions now and the administrative code, uh, you could accommodate them in most commercial zones. Uh, but it may very well be that either the city council or the city planning commission may decide they want to get a greater handle on it. Uh, right now, it would appear, I mean, if this is a drugstore-like environment, there wouldn't be a need for a special use permit. But if the uh, city council or the planning commission were to decide they want to make this particular use the subject of a special use permit, then you would have an uh, entire uh, different administrative process put in. Uh, any of us who have uh, uh, done the wonderfully named ULERP process <laughs> in the city of New York know how exhaustive this can be. And if you have a special, if, if you make a requirement for a special use permit, uh, the uh, would-be marijuana retailer would have to sell uh, or would then have to go through the Euler process, which is time-consuming and difficult, and you never can tell what's going to happen. But there's there, like with the State Liquor Authority, the involvement of the community boards uh, becomes uh, a, a key factor. Jerry, can you help me anticipate uh, what this would mean for communities of color specifically and uh, low-income communities? Well, I, I haven't seen much that would be different. Uh, I think that you will have objections from all strata that uh, there, there certainly has been a perception uh, in certain areas that communities of color have had certain undesirable things dumped on them. And where you have that perception, uh, you might say, well, then, you know, they, they don't want it on Fifth Avenue, but you can, you know, have marijuana on 135th Street. And that could be uh, a problem, uh, although, uh, you know, my, my feeling is that it there will be a universal issue because there are pockets of people who will object to this or who will fear it uh, all over the city. We actually do have uh, one of the medical providers on Fifth Avenue at this point. That is very true. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> but medical, uh, again, there are certain differences uh, uh, from, from adult use. Public safety and uh, vehicular security are two of the major issues facing urban uh, communities like New York City when addressing legalization. As New York City uh, will likely set the tone for other densely populated cities, Councilman Richards, could you share with us uh, some of the conversations you and your colleagues are having at City Council? Well, I'll start with the, the first conversation, and I think the Council sort of drummed this up uh, a few months ago, and I have the honor and distinct honor of chairing the Public Safety Committee, which gives me jurisdiction uh, in the Council over the New York City Police Department. And uh, much earlier this year, as I assumed this position, um, we started to look at the disproportionate numbers around arrests and summonses giving to uh, people of color. And largely what stoked my interest was that the 105th precinct, which I represent, uh, which is comprised of Laurelton, Roseville, and Springfield Gardens, which uh, is remotely uh, representative of the black middle class in New York City, 
we led the city for nearly a decade in arrests and summonses in marijuana. And when we looked at the numbers, we were just astounded. So we held a public hearing on, on the issue, and the NYPD eventually did provide the data. And the, the data sh clearly showed um, that there was no correlation between what they said uh, led to enforcement, 911, and 311 calls uh, around this issue. And when we looked at the data, we largely saw that there were other communities that were not of color who also were uh, calling about the same issue, but largely 86% of all arrests and summonses were happening in black and brown communities. So, um, so the council pushed very hard on this, um, and we did not let this go away, and that's what led to the NYPD's shift in policy, and not to say that we are totally out of the woods because the, the strategy has changed now to criminal summonses, which can still lead you into the system if you don't, uh, if you don't uh, answer a warrant, um, a summons. Uh, so largely that has been the, the first amount of work that has happened. And now we know that the state is certainly looking at uh, this specific issue and, you know, I think we, over the course of the next few months, and I've had the honor of going to some of the hearings already, they, uh, the state held a hearing in Queens, the governor's office, just a few weeks ago. Um, largely, we're thinking of all the things that were mentioned up here. We're thinking of zoning, siting. But the other area we're very interested in, in talking about is justice for communities that were largely disproportionately impacted um, with these arrests and summonses. And what does that look like for us as we legalize? Uh, there should be conversation around expungement of people's records tied to legalization. We cannot legalize marijuana, and we should not legalize marijuana in New York State without first addressing the underlying issues that, that happen. Um, so th there's also an interest around ensuring that Main Street, and when I say Main Street, that the communities of color who were largely disproportionately impacted by enforcement also get a piece of the pie. Um, and that means ensuring that uh, if we're going to cite these facilities, that we not just be consumers, but that there's a process where we, if we don't have access to capital, that there's a process from the state to lenders access to capital, incubator space, we should be able to own as well and not just be consumers. So that's largely been a big conversation that's come up in the council as well. And then we are working, uh, my committee right now, well, my committee in conjunction with the General Welfare Committee, and we just introduced a bill around um, reporting through ACS. There are a lot of mothers, believe it or not, young African-American and Latino mothers who've had their children taken away over marijuana. And we need to ensure that ACS is more transparent in what that looks like and ensure that mothers aren't losing their children um, because someone smoked, smelled marijuana coming from an apartment that may not have even been the mother smoking it. So, so those are largely some, interest, some areas of interest um, for, for myself and the council will be looking at more comprehensive things such as a resolution also in support of legalizing marijuana over the course of the next few months. With respect to uh, the CPS issues that um, 
specifically mothers are having, I'm hearing a lot about that as well. Is that something that can be addressed by the city in advance of legalization or, or are we yeah, waiting for the Yeah, well, state my act? bill uh, in particular uh, requires ACS to start to report or open or uh, report on the opening of cases for investigation of child abuse or neglect that largely are centered around uh, marijuana. So for example, a parent's or a caretaker's marijuana usage, inadequate food and clothing, shelter, or other specified allegations put against mothers. So we absolutely, as a city, have an obligation to also clean up our house as well, even as the state looks towards legalization. But I think this is, this is an unjust thing. And I, we had a press conference on the steps of City Hall where a mother came and her child was taken away from a newborn um, because the the uh, boyfriend had actually been smoking. She hadn't been smoking. Um, but the allegations were put out there and ACS had to acted on those allegations. So, um, no, it's a real issue and, and that's why we're looking at passage of legislation around this area. Are there any protections for parents who are medical patients? Um, parents who are medical, uh, I, I mean, that's, once again, a conversation around ACE, uh, we're, we're going to have with ACS as we move forward. Um, but if you, if you have, if you are uh, uh, smoking legally uh, or, or you're, you're using it for a medical reason, I, but I would also argue, let me just back up for a second. When you talk of access and who's getting access to, to medical marijuana, a lot of times it's not individuals in our communities, right? right? So I think um, that's a conversation that has a continue. I'm not, I don't want to misspeak and say yay or nay, but I would say a lot of individuals who are having more access to the medical marijuana are not the individuals on 125th Street or in South Jamaica, Queens. And there needs to be, uh, you know, obviously more resources put in that area to make sure we have access to that, and especially when you talk of access to health care and other things, a lot of individuals in our communities don't have access to that. What are you hearing specifically from the constituents? Oh, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> so we held a town hall um, uh, earlier this year after we started the conversation with the police commissioner, um, and largely what we found at the town halls at first before um, people were educated on what exactly was happening in our local communities and what that disproportionate arrest and summons uh, impact looked like. Uh, you know, a lot of individuals were concerned about uh, people driving while intoxicated. Uh, people were concerned about walking to their park or their grandchildren um, having to endure smoke as they, as they walked to the park or played in the playground. Um, but I think once we started to educate individuals on, listen, your grandchildren are being put through the criminal justice system, um, and, and once you're put through the system, that is a life sentence for many young black men and women in this city. Um, locked out of housing opportunities, um, locked out of student uh, grants, right? Um, locked out of the job market. So I think people have had an aha moment um, even, uh, I would say a lot of our seniors, because they are the ones who come up to, to come out to a lot of the meetings and who will have complaints about it. Uh, but the other thing we've seen the community turn towards, and I'm noticing, sometimes it's, it's generational. Sure. A lot of young people now are coming up and they want to know how can they get, be a part of the enterprise coming? How could they ensure that Wall Street is not the only one benefiting 
uh, off of legalization and how could they get a piece of the pie. And I'm telling them they need to, to, to keep a close eye on this. We should look to places like Oakland who've done some creative things, and I'm, I don't want to vouch for Oakland and say they got it 100% right, but there were some things that they did that I thought were creative. Um, so we're largely hearing young people who want to be engaged and, and, and want to benefit, and economic development and, and, and economic justice should also be a theme um, as we talk legalization um, for communities of color. So I was fortunate uh, enough to be in LA last week uh, with some of the, the uh, drafters of the social equity program there, as well as some folks who are involved with the Oakland programs, and there are problems. Yep, uh, yep. And I'm curious, is there any talk among the cities and city council specifically about implementing social equity programs on the city level as opposed to the state level? Yeah, well, we have to wait for them to legalize it. But I think, once again, on uh, there's going to be a lot more conversation around this. I think we're going to have a package of bills and resolutions that we certainly are looking at um, as we move forward. But absolutely, there should be, as Oakland did have a social justice application or something, I forgot exactly what the terminology was um, that they used. But looking at the particular zip codes, who should be prioritized right. through this process? When permits go out, permits should be prioritized for the communities who were most impacted. And then also when you look at the effects of gentrification, and I think one thing Oakland did to safeguard that, and I'm not here to vouch and say they got it 100% right, but they looked at you know perhaps prioritizing those who may have lived in a neighborhood going back over a decade or so. They looked at those who had a record, who had been summoned and in the areas that were, were under siege over low-level marijuana offenses, and they prioritized those areas. So that is something that the council and my committee and others will certainly be interested in. Um, and just from another standpoint on reporting, and I just want to turn back to that for a second, we passed legislation um, through my committee which required the NYPD also to now report on, uh, uh, on race, breakdown by race of who's being arrested, where they're being arrested, so that we can also make sure there's some transparency there. But those numbers, data is so important in this conversation because data should help us to drive policy that will ensure that economic justice for a lot of the communities we're speaking about um, receive a piece of, of the pie as well. I also just want to point out that the Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty, has also spoken about expungement through this process as well. And I think that that is a critical part of this conversation. One of the challenges that uh, was expressed in LA when I was there um, with their social equity program was uh, you know, that it, it's set up and designed uh, to give access to people of color, to people who've been affected by the war on drugs, uh, and so the intents and purposes are there. However, the capital and the, the access to, to, to funding sources is just not there because we don't have traditional methods either. So uh, what they're facing is a lot of predatory behavior, mm -hmm. and with Wall Street, downtown town, um, wondering if there's thought around you know, what we can do to essentially protect folks and, and make folks aware of you know, different opportunities and what, what that looks like. Well, I think during the passage of this, these conversations should certainly be attached um, in negotiations. And I know I'm a city council member, but I know at the state level, 
Um, you know, these the conversation certainly around access to capital has to be a part of any package of legalization. I think the state is going to raise an incredible amount of money off of this. Perhaps there can be funding set aside for startups. There can be, ink. I know another uh, challenge has always been space. Where would you grow? Where, you know. So I think incubator space being a part of the conversation is certainly something important. I think they did that in Oakland as well. Um, so I would say we're raising a certain amount of money <laughs> a year. The state should certainly be thinking about MBEs um, and thinking about a way to fully engage uh, all communities through this process. Thank you. With respect to transportation and public roadways, Stephen, what, what changes are necessary to ensure personal and patient rights are honored while ensuring public safety? I first just want to... Um, comment on, on an issue that the councilman just raised that's important, I think, and the, it crosses over to probationers or people on parole. The legalization of marijuana doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the criminal justice system or you were talking about the ACS should be using it, right? So just it's the, the analogy to alcohol. We're going to see a significant analogy from marijuana to what has happened with alcohol. So if an individual comes into the criminal justice system, for example, is on probation or parole, can they consume alcohol? Well, it's dependent upon the offense that brought them there. And is there abuse of it? Is there a need for treatment? With marijuana, it'll be the same thing. So I think the consideration is not just whether or not it's legal. So should it be an issue involving ACS? It's a question of whether it's abused, whether there's, an, there's a problem with it, and whether there's something that we need to do from a rehabilitation standpoint. Now, your question on, uh, on the traffic safety, I think, is an important one. It's probably what the councilman says most people are concerned with. A lot of people don't know the research, don't know the background and the history. But first of all, marijuana is prevalent in an unregulated and uncontrolled market right now. Every study and every the NHTSA, National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration's roadside study uh, in 2013 showed a 48% increase in marijuana use from 2007. And the other thing to consider when looking at this is most peer-reviewed research suggests that there is there's a significant doubt about a correlation between the use of marijuana and impaired driving. And that's an important thing for the public to keep an eye on. However, that being said, there significantly, obviously, delta tetranine hydrocabinol is a psychotropic drug. It, 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 it affects our, our mental functions to some extent. The question of whether or not it substantially impairs our ability to drive is a different issue, right? Now, the Department of Health report that suggests the legalization of recreational marijuana, uh, Dr. Zucker's report, and I think the quote was that the positives outweigh the negatives, right? So the question is, may the legalization of recreational marijuana lead to more drivers on the road who have consumed marijuana, right? That's going to be the question. And while the answer may be yes, in the totality of the circumstances, the positives of the legalization, I think, are going to make it safer on the roadways. I think they're going to make it safer for the community, and here's how. First of all, the major change is going to be there's going to be a much more significant awareness by law enforcement officers on what to look for when detecting a, a driver whose ability to operate a motor vehicle is impaired by marijuana. You know, prior to the last five or ten years, it was basically the Cheech and Chong exception of the car doors opening and a great big billow of smoke coming out. Or, right, or, you know, my clients who are smart enough to admit to just smoking a joint or keeping it in the ashtray meaning that law enforcement didn't really have the ability to detect. There was this myth of the green tongue, which we all know is just, I mean, it's really true. This is what law enforcement used to think, that if you smoke marijuana, you'd have a green tongue. So, 
the legalization of marijuana is going to bring income stream of somewhere in the area to three, four hundred million, six hundred million. I mean, we don't know what the numbers are going to be. And I think obviously there's going to be a targeting of use of those funds for educating our law enforcement officers, training them on A-RIDE, which is um, alcohol recognition that also involves drugs and, and impairment, as well as DRE certifications, which are drug recognition examiners. But just even without those officers who are trained through the public council sessions, through the legalization, through the discussion of it, they're more aware of the issue. Uh, I think you're going to have a movement towards validated, standardized fieldside sobriety testing, which we've had a problem doing because the, the government didn't feel comfortable dosing people with marijuana and then testing their ability to drive. We've had no problem doing it with alcohol because since 1933 and the passage of the 21st Amendment, it was okay to drink. Uh, but once we have recreational marijuana lawful, we can conduct dosing experiments. We can put people in simulators. We can test their ability to drive. And we could also create standardized, validated field-side sobriety tests, which will enable law enforcement officers. There's another thing that we could do. We could spend more money and we could train officers to use field screening devices, such as the saliva test. So, you know, there's a test right now that's put out by Drager called the Drug Test 5000. So a law enforcement officer can take a swab of, of saliva from a motorist's mouth, which is non-invasive, um, and gives you a quick positive negative that could then later be sent for, you know, for confirmatory testing. So those kind of things, I think in the end, are gonna make our roads safer because those drivers are out there now, right? They're, they're not not driving because legal, marijuana hasn't been legalized. That, that's crazy, that's like to think in the 1920s, there was nothing called a speakeasy and nobody was consuming alcohol. Um, so I think that's gonna be big, but here's the other thing. When we talk about the, the roadways and the health, you, there's a greater issue, right, of the health concerns that aren't limited to the roadways. All studies show from all of the states that have legalized recreational marijuana that there's a significant reduction in opioid use. There's a significant reduction in synthetic marijuana. Synthetic marijuana is scary. Synthetic marijuana could lead to death. People are creating synthetic marijuana to avoid detection in drug testing, which is no longer going to be necessary if you have legalized recreational marijuana. And the people that it's preying on the most is our youth. So it, the legalization of marijuana, and, and here's the biggest thing. The biggest thing is the packages will be marked, the public will be educated, the consumer will know what the dosage is, and it'll, it'll be safer for them to use, which also makes safer drivers, right? Because the same people who are the consumers are gonna be the drivers. So I think the, the pros outweigh the cons, and in the end, our roadways, I truly believe, will be safer. Stephen, talk a little bit about, uh, we, were, we were talking earlier uh, before the panel discussion uh, about consumption versus impairment. Right. And how that um, comes into play with like a roadside sobriety test. So, you know, the alcohol is, a, is an example to look at. Our statute says there's two different ways of prosecuting driving while intoxicated by alcohol. We have common law DWI, which is basically you operate a motor vehicle while your ability to operate the motor vehicle is substantially impaired by alcohol. And it's called common law because it predated the use of breath testing devices, which interestingly enough, date back to 1938, just five years after the passage of the 21st Amendment. So if you really wanna pay attention, and people are saying pay attention to what's going on, pay attention to history. 
right? Look back at what happened after the passage of the 21st Amendment and what, what evolved from that was breath testing devices, things like that, right? The problem with uh, marijuana and marijuana detection is it, it's short-lived in the system. When somebody consumes marijuana, the psychotropic ingredient is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which most people refer to as THC. But it residualizes in the fat cells, and it stays for 30 days in a form called carboxy. I mean, technically, it's delta-tetra-9 carboxy-11 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is people refer to as carboxy, THC. There's no psychotropic effect of carboxy. It's just a derivative. So law enforcement testing needs to test quickly, right? They, they, need, they need to get in there and test quickly for levels. The problem is, and here's the issue, right? All, most of the studies show that there's no correlation like the way there is with alcohol. We know that at certain blood alcohol concentrations, there's a certain impact on drivers. It's not the same for marijuana. There is no correlation. Right now, the studies don't show. Now, there may. Once we have recreational marijuana and we have more dosing experiments and the government could spend more time in research, maybe the studies will validate it, but right now it doesn't. So how do you prosecute people for this? Do you create a per se level, even though you know there's no correlation between a per se level and the ability to drive? Well, you do if your job is to make the prosecution easier, right? So I think um, one of the things the government has to look at is a, is a three-tiered system. It's the, it's the European equivalent. There should be an analysis of certain cutoff levels that are just traffic infractions. And this is important because it's going to give the government the ability to get rid of the cases out of the criminal justice system. We have a big issue in New York right now, which is that driving while ability impaired by alcohol at its lowest level of just impairment is simply a traffic infraction, and it gives prosecutors the ability to get cases out of the criminal justice system where they don't want people to get criminal convictions. Most of my clients, 95 out of 100, are first arrest DWIs. They don't have a history of criminal convictions, and they're gonna wind up with a criminal conviction right now. If we go forward with the law as we're all talking about it, driving while ability impaired by marijuana to any extent will be a misdemeanor to any extent by alcohol is a traffic infraction. So we need to look at a way that we could funnel these cases out of the system where prosecutors make a decision to use their discretion so that people don't wind up with criminal convictions. And the question becomes, what is the goal, right? So you asked how can we detect whether somebody's ability to drive is impaired? You know, the, the clear answer to that is what was the driving, right? and it, 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 it connects to the driving. And the best way to prosecute somebody for impaired by any drug is proof that there was actual operational impairment. But there's a significant number of cases that come through the criminal justice system where there's none. We have sobriety checkpoints throughout the city of New York. Motorists drive up to a sobriety checkpoint, they're doing nothing wrong. The only reason they're stopped is because there's a checkpoint. So how do you prosecute that person if, right, for impaired driving when they did nothing wrong? And, it's going to simply come down to a policy decision about what we want, you know. I'm also thinking about these uh, field sobriety tests. So, you know, as the, the industry matures and ingestion methods and, uh, you know, types of products become um, more varied and, and different, uh, topicals, such, they do contain THC. Will they show up positive even though they won't, they, they are not intended to impair yeah. your... Yeah. Oh, well, it depends. So it depends upon the dosage and how, how it's going to take about an hour to two hours. And your screening test won't detect the quantification level. So, for example, right now, alcohol, you can take a breath test, right? So you can blow into a breath test. And because alcohol 
you're trying to get a blood alcohol concentration level, the, there's a correlation between the amount of alcohol in your blood and the amount of alcohol to your breath, generically. It's not a fixed ratio, right? The same types of tests are right now available through using saliva tests. There's actually what they're calling a breath testing device for marijuana, but it actually is not a breath testing device. It's a breath testing device that deposits saliva into a box, and the saliva is stored. So under New York's existing statute now, anybody in this room that drives a motor vehicle has implicitly given your consent to a test of breath, blood, urine, or saliva. Those are the four things that could be collected. So it's already in the statute. So long as the officer has probable cause to believe that you're operating a motor vehicle while impaired by alcohol or drugs, they can then ask you to take a saliva test. So your client who's taking a low dosage of Delta Tetra, I mean, if they're taking THC, so they're taking, they're not taking CBD, right? They're taking, and, and here's the other problem, is some tests are only for cannabinoids. So that test is gonna come positive for, for anything, right? Even for your CBD, it's gonna come positive for that. So the question is, what are you looking for? And the, the problem is you have to accomplish two goals. The law enforcement has to have an ability to make a decision in the field quickly and secure the evidence. That's why the saliva test is probably the best way to go. It uses immunoassay testing, which is decent for screening. It's like your home pregnancy test. Strip changes colors because there are antibodies on the, on the strip that get attracted to whatever they're looking for. The problem is there's lots of false positives. We all know that. You have to go for a blood test, right, to confirm that you're pregnant, right? Same thing with the saliva testing for THC. We can, officers can take a swab. They store it. They keep it. You get a positive screening test. They can make an arrest. They now then send that kit to the lab. Now the lab has to do gas chromatography to confirm that it's delta tetranine hydrocabinol, and they could then do a quantification analysis at that point. Does that answer your question? It does. Uh, and so I'm curious what, what, what lessons we can learn from what's happening out west. Oh, I think great lessons, but I think the biggest lesson is is probably in the taxation, right? One of the biggest benefits that we have of recreational marijuana is we eliminate the uncontrolled market, right? The unregulated market. And we don't wanna pass legalized recreational marijuana and then have drug dealers selling uncontrolled, unregulated um, marijuana, which is dangerous like synthetic drugs. And what happened in Washington is a great example. They set their tax rates so high that it became so expensive to buy it in the regulated market that the unregulated market continued, right? So we have to tax it at a rate that will succeed in doing that. That's, that's a big thing. And, in, and I, I would look beyond the states. I would look to the European models too to take a look at how we can set up our statutes to ensure that we make the roadways as safe as we can. But I think the biggest thing is the tax issue. But in terms of the, the VTL, or the vehicle and traffic law, what, what types of lessons can we learn from, uh, for instance, Colorado, who is mm. a little bit further along in their, um, their program? You know, we're, we're, I think we're further along than most states. And it, I'm, I'm part of an organization called the National College of DUI Defense, or I lecture, right? So I go to a lot of other states, and I speak to a lot of other attorneys that do the work that I do. And in New York, we have a, a mechanism, we have a statute, the Driving While Ability Impaired by Alcohol Statute, that allows people to, as like an escape valve. You know? So the comparison is when people get arrested for a non-DWI offense, and um, it's their first arrest, they're a non-violent offender, and the prosecutors don't want this individual to have a criminal record. 
they could reduce it to something called disorderly conduct, which is a violation, not a crime. The person doesn't have a criminal record. It doesn't impact their life tremendously. In New York State, we have a, a similar statute, VTL 1192-1, which is driving while ability impaired by by alcohol. Now, it's a non-sealable offense, so it's a little different. It does have an impact on your life, but it doesn't give you a criminal conviction. I think in terms of looking at our regulations, we need to make sure that when we legalize, because we're going to, right? When we legalize marijuana, we need to make sure that we have the same provisions in place for driving while ability impaired by marijuana, because if, if we, if the law, get, if, if it gets regulated now, if it gets legalized and this person over here gets arrested for driving while ability impaired by alcohol, and this person over here gets arrested for driving while ability impaired by marijuana, just slightly impaired, that's a traffic infraction, that's a misdemeanor. And that makes no sense, because all the studies demonstrate that this is a safer driver, right? So at a minimum, it needs to be on equal terms. And the other problem is gonna be our criminal justice system will be overwhelmed with cases that can't be resolved, that are gonna to have to go to trial, you know? What impact do you see, or if any, on public transportation? Uh, yeah. You know, whether or not less people are going to drive because they can recreationally consume marijuana. I think the biggest impact on it has been Uber, right? We see, we see more people taking public transportation because it's easier. easier. With the studies and, and what we now know about the number of people that still currently consume marijuana in an unregulated market, I, I can't imagine it would be that significant in a regulated market. But, I, I, you know, as, as, as Joe said before, we're, we don't know, right? This is, we, 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 somebody had that quote, right? We know what we know, we know what we don't know, and we don't know what we know about what we don't know, right? I, think, I forgot who it was that said that. There you go, there you go. Um, so whether or not, I, I certainly would expect that certain people knowing, and you know what it's gonna come down to? Once they get arrested for driving while ability impaired by marijuana, and they realize that they have to spend $15,000 to defend the case, because it's still gonna be a crime. You know, making marijuana recreational legal does not mean you can drive while your ability to operate a motor vehicle is impaired by marijuana. And I think what'll happen is because there'll be a rise in, there'll definitely be a rise in arrests for driving while ability impaired by marijuana, no doubt about it. So those people, it's specific deterrence. Those people that get arrested for it, they're using Uber. So I guess the answer to your question is probably yes, but not as significant as most people would think. How specific is a field sobriety test? Will it be able to tell when the consumption occurred? Uh, well, that's an interesting question because the, the offense is operating a motor vehicle while your ability to do so is impaired by alcohol or drugs, so it relates to the operation. But the testing is usually at some point subsequent to that, and which is why the saliva test is such a good device, because it allows the law enforcement officer to test it on the scene within 5, 10, 15 minutes after a, a roadside stop. Um, so it, the, it's not going to show you... Well, okay, so I think the answer to your question is it could. And the way it could is right now in New York State, uh, the, way we, uh, the way we administer our law for alcohol is where we, by practice, not by statute, we're a single test state, which means that we take one test of a person's blood alcohol concentration. It's a single test. However, if you wanna know and you wanna be able to extrapolate back is what you're saying, we wanna know what was the time of consumption, what were they at an earlier point of time, then you need to take two samples.
And if you take two samples, say 15 minutes apart from one another, then you could establish whether the person is absorbing or eliminating, and you could establish rates of elimination or absorption, and then you could extrapolate back if you have, you need more data than that. But otherwise, it's just going to give you an answer as to whether or not it's in their system. And is that information specific to the person, or is it is universal? Elimination rates are pretty universal, and absorption rates depend upon metabolism, body weight, and a host of other factors. Okay. And uh, I'm curious about how law enforcement will uh, behavior will be impacted. Are we going to see more uh, stops? Are we going to see more, um, uh, you know, activity? Yeah, we're already seeing it. Wanna? You know, I said before, there's a thing called DRE, which is Drug Recognition Evaluator. Uh, they, they like to say drug recognition expert, but... I guess it's all about choice of words, right? Um, the drug recognition evaluator, so there's a 12-step there's a test. And if we would have had this conversation three years ago, there's a website you can go on to for the um, Department of Transportation website that'll tell you what officers are DRE trained in every county of the state. And if you would have gone on there three years ago, you wouldn't find one who was DRE certified in New York, New York City, wouldn't find one. Now you'll see several. And here's why, because the federal government has seen this coming years ago, you know, and there's been a lot of money that's been spent on research and grants and studies, and, and there's been more money to, to train officers on DRE. So there'll be more officers trained to detect the use of marijuana because marijuana will be recreationally legal. So, and that's the key, right? That's the reason why the streets should be safer, because police officers will be able to detect marijuana-impaired drivers. So in May of this year, uh, Deputy Controller Niblack, your office released a report entitled Estimated Tax Revenues from Marijuana Legalization in New York, wherein it was estimated that a legal adult use marijuana market at some $3.1 billion per year in New York State, about $1.1 billion of that in New York City. In turn, the Controller's office estimates that this market could conservatively yield annual tax revenues of as much as $1.3 billion total at the state and city levels. That assumes a combination of state and local sales and excise taxes in which, uh, sorry, excuse me, in line with what other jurisdictions have passed that could yield up to $436 million in revenues for the state, $336 million for the city, and some $570 million for localities outside of the city. That's a direct quote from the report. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your office determined these calculations and how other industries such as hospitality and tourism have factored in? Sure, thank you. So um, th this estimate is what in technical forecasting terminology is called a wag or a wild ass guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we, the, the controller's office, uh, I'm gonna use that. Uh, Control Stringer's predecessor did an estimate in 2013, I think. Um, and subsequently, now as this conversation came up again and the, and the bill was uh, passed as part of the budget this spring, um, we thought it was time to update it. And in particular, because we have a lot more information now from real life experience in other states, particularly Washington and Colorado. So, um, so we decided it was time to update our estimate. The, the, so these numbers sound very specific, you know, $336 million, you know, who knows. But, um, uh, and we picked one tax scheme that seemed like a prevalent one or a common one, which was a, uh, essentially a retail excise tax. Um, 
plus sales tax. So there, there are any number of tax schemes, and we don't know what will come up, uh, what the state will come up with. One thing to bear in mind is that the state um, ultimately, the city can't impose taxes without the state's authorization. So the state will have to act first and decide what you know, it's gonna set its tax rate at and then what it will allow local governments to set their tax rates at. And I'm sure it will give us some <clears throat> leeway and it will be sort of up to X percent or whatever the um, uh, type of tax is. So in our estimate, we, uh, we with reference to Washington and Colorado, kind of uh, updated sort of usage, looked at the national um, survey, uh, drug survey, household drug survey to estimate consumption uh, and so used all of that to come up with an estimate of the market, uh, which was, as you said, about $3 billion statewide and about a billion dollars in the city. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around that estimate. Um, and I think the experience in Washington, Colorado has demonstrated that the market is tremendously affected by the tax rate. Um, and, uh, you know, as your other panelists just pointed out, you know, you, you can get too greedy. Um, so we assumed 10% excise tax rate at the state level, primarily because Massachusetts has a 10 and three quarters percent tax rate. So we said, well, let's, let's set it in a way that's competitive and assume that, you know, Connecticut and New Jersey and maybe even Pennsylvania are gonna get there eventually also. And then, we assumed that the city would set their local rate at 25%, again, not knowing what the state will authorize. That's a high rate. Um, and I, there are a lot of, there's some pieces that we left out. Um, what will commuters do? You know, commuters may, commuters and tourists may well, you know, become purchasers in New York City if, especially for com commuters, it's not, available in their state. So if you have New Jersey doesn't legalize, and that seems like that's coming also, but you know, if New Jersey or Connecticut were not to legalize, there would be probably some commuter uh, sales. Um, there's 800,000 commuters who come into the city every day. I don't know how many of them smoke, but you know, it's like all of them. <laughs> to, At least 52%. I, yeah, sure. I've thought about it, getting in the subway every morning, certainly, so. Um, and you have 60 million tourists, um, so 63, excuse me, <laughs> I was rounding. Um, so, you know, some of, those, some of those are not captured in our estimate. The, the most interesting piece of this is really sort of how does the, I mean, we've heard about all the other decisions that have to be made around how you're going to go from uh, a market that exists but is unregulated and untaxed to one that is regulated and taxed. Every decision you make has some impact on the speed with which that market gets from uh, illicit to legal and how much of it. Um, California is having the experience right now of a, uh, of a black market that continues to operate in parallel with the legal market. Washington State had the same problem, dramatically revised their tax rate down, still the highest rate. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they really realized that they were gonna have to adjust their rates um, or they were never gonna see the market 
really become fully regulated. And that's a real, a real issue, and I think that's one that it's hard to know going in exactly where the sweet spot is uh, that maximizes your revenues while at the same time, because both you set because you set the rate right to bring enough of the market into uh, you know into legal market that you actually capture all the tax revenue that you can. Um, there are a couple of other considerations that we didn't go into. Uh, the, so there's one of them is the sort of speed with which markets become legal, and I think there's been evidence that it takes a little while. It takes a few years. So, you know, the the estimate that we came up with. Uh, was essentially assuming full legalization, right? That the whole market had become legal and that was and was subject to taxation. It's not going to happen right away. Are there thoughts about year one revenue? No, I don't know. We, I mean, we, you know, when you look at Colorado and Washington, it's striking how steadily it, the market has increased over a period of several years. You know, so you're really you're seeing that it's taking a while. So yeah, there will be substantially less. Well, the, the other thing that we didn't look at, because this is, you know, beyond a wag at this point, is uh, you, you have a bunch of um, businesses, essentially, and workers who are off the books right now. All those people, when they become into a legal market, their personal, you know, their personal income, their business income is also all subject to taxation. I don't think that's a huge number. A billion dollars, you know, sounds like a big number, but in the context of the city's, you know, an almost $900 billion gross city product, it's really not. Um, so it's not going to be a huge amount. You know, as a budget guy, I welcome all revenue, but, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, there, there are all of those uh, sort of other effects as well that, we, you know, we just didn't feel like we could estimate, but which people are now really starting to think about. Uh, and a couple of states have sort of tried to back into the number and are having, it's, it's hard to know exactly what, you know, there's so many other fluctuations that go on with your revenues that are hard to account for sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and, and as legalization um, approaches, what, what impact can we see on uh, adjacent um, industries like tourism and uh, hospitality, entertainment? Um, are we giving thought to that sort of tax revenue dollar as well? I, I, I have no idea how to measure what the impact might be of legalizing in New York City and not legalizing in neighboring jurisdictions. I, I don't sort of don't really know how to like estimate what, you know, again, it's entirely possible that you get some business initially um, from people who live outside of the city. Um, and then especially if they're commuters, as the adjoining states legalize that that business will go away again. I don't, you know, I don't think that's a big number probably, but um, I don't, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, you know, right now there's clearly a thriving black market out there and it is sort of well connected to sort of the entertainment industry, not, not the entertainment industry and sort of, you know, people don't go to Broadway and smoke joints, but you know, there's plenty of bar, right? Plenty of <laughs> plenty of bars and nightclubs, and uh, where people are obviously smoking, and presumably will continue to do so when it's legal. So, I guess I'm also curious about, uh, you know, we saw in in Colorado specifically, um, there became a, a cannabis uh, a tourism industry, and I would expect that that would evolve here in New York as well. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to think about that. I, there are lots of reasons to go to Colorado, and there are lots of reasons to go to New York. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm slightly skeptical about the, yeah. honestly, about the um, cannabis tourism in, in Colorado. And, but to the extent that, it, I mean, it's real, but to the extent that it's there, uh, it's a little bit of a novelty item. My feeling is, is that it's a little bit of a novelty item, and especially as the rest of the country starts to sort of move in the direction of, um, uh, legalization, then I think it's going to taper off. And I don't, you know, again, I, I don't know how to estimate it. I don't quite know how to wrap my head around it or think about it. Um, we looked at this a little bit in the context of Colorado, and I think we were just a little bit skeptical about the numbers and weren't comfortable trying to estimate based on that, at least yet. So. So what, what are some of the critical issues you see once we ultimately decide on the tax rate? What, what are some factors that will weigh in on that decision? On setting the tax rate? Or, right. Yeah, well, again, it, I, I think there are a couple of considerations. One is, um, you, you, so one thing I'll say is uh, there's a lot of, uh, to the extent that tax rates differ, you're going to see border arbitrage issues, right? So you have... Um, you know, cigarette taxes are extremely high in New York City compared to neighboring jurisdictions. There are estimates that at least half the cigarette sales in New York City are uh, smuggled. So we're, you know, losing revenue because of setting the rates perhaps too high. Um, they've had the public health effect um, that Mayor Bloomberg sought when he initiated it, but uh, at the same time, you know, we've lost some revenue probably from the smuggling. So I guess it depends on what you think is most important. Um, you know, I, of course, always think revenue is important, but, you know. Um, the, it's possible to set it too low as well. You have a 7% medical marijuana rate right now. You don't want to, like, you don't want to undercut that rate. Uh, otherwise, you just move business uh, from one place to another. So, and you want to take into account what you think the rates are going to be um, uh, or are in neighboring jurisdictions. I think also there's, I don't quite know how to do this, this is a little bit uncharted territory, but um, in a perfect world, if I could sort of design the tax system, I would phase in rates that would get higher over time to help induce the market uh, to legalize. Um, because if you set rates too high, as the experience of Washington and California shows, initially, uh, people are not incentivized to come out of the shadows and become legal. And the, the, and the black market is well established. It works very well. And it will continue to work if that's more profitable for the people who are in it. Uh, so. Thank you. Sorry for all the movement. Uh, as assistant, as, excuse me, as assistant counsel to Governor Cuomo, Axel, can you please provide an overview of his legalization efforts uh, to prepare for the new industry? Uh, sure, <clears throat> happy to do that. Uh, first, though, I do want to thank you guys for setting this up, and uh, you, you know yourself, Luke and Noah. I think the, uh, the the key to this whole process is having as much public discussion as possible. That's been a bit of a linchpin of what we've been trying to do. There are a lot of competing priorities and trade-offs that are going to need to be made, and some of them were identified here tonight. So uh, not everybody has the same position on them, and the more you talk them out and the more you educate, I think the better the chances are that, that this gets done. Um, but so from, from the, uh, the administration's position, the, the interest in seriously looking at the legalization of cannabis started 
in January when the governor requested that the Department of Health shepherd a report, which was a multi-state report that was going to report back on, um, on the likely impact, uh, the health impact, economic impact, and social justice impact of legalization. That report was rendered uh, to, to the governor in July. It's you know, a report that we've been mentioning and in the weighing overall, and that there were a lot of competing values in there, but overall found that legalization was in fact um, uh, a better outcome. And so we examined that report and endorsed it in August. And at that point, uh, the governor and panel, the work group, which, uh, you know, the members of which are public and uh, predominantly public health focused. So there is a, uh, a concern that when we do this, we do it with a public health focus. So in terms of the competing, you know, I might disagree a little bit on, uh, on tax rates to the extent that it would drive serious uh, problems in consumption, such as you know, $3 uh, a gram rates in Oregon or Washington. We'd have to decide, you know, is that something that we're comfortable doing? What does that, what does that mean for, for access and for uh, potential use or cannabis use disorder or other, you know, substance use disorder? So, but so, so these are the issues that, that our work group is examining. At the same time as we impaneled the work group, we started a process of 17 listening sessions across the state. Uh, that was just recently finished and we're working on trying to provide a bit, bit of a summary that we're hoping to, to make uh, public next week. Um, and then uh, simultaneously, we've been just uh, in full stakeholder engagement. We've met, I think, uh, as many jurisdictions as possible, as many uh, interests as possible from the medical society to the addiction professionals, to the state police, to the local police chiefs and sheriffs. Um, and we're still working on that. And we have a legislative outreach strategy where we talk to all the members uh, that, are, um, that are currently involved in promoting some uh, form of cannabis legislation. So we've been doing that. Um, we've been talking to other state regulators. We've been very, very busy. Yeah. Excellent. I'm curious, uh, so you mentioned the working group. And as Joseph said, there was uh, no one from the State Liquor Authority appointed to that group. Um, also absent were uh, members of the industry, the current cannabis industry. And so I'm curious as to how that uh, group was, was formed. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. There are no members uh, of the industry, just as there are no other interest groups. Really, uh, the, the group was fairly big already. Um, there are a lot of state agencies that are represented there. SLA actually is at the meetings. It just wasn't a formal uh, attendance. Um, really, the focus, again, was public health. We wanted to keep it. Most of the folks that are on the work group are PhDs. Um, it's really about establishing, a lot of the priorities are about establishing baselines. A lot of the, you know, several people made the comment about having data drive uh, our outcomes. So before you have good, in order to have good data, you need a baseline. So prior to legalization, so you want to make sure that you're measuring, it be it driving, be it rates of incarceration, um, be it the informal market and what that is. And so you can measure your progress. Are we getting people from the informal market into the legal market? Are we arresting in a less disproportionate manner? Are we stopping people that are, uh, you know, in, uh, intoxicated? So, so I wouldn't read too much into the, into the, um, into the work group, but certainly one of the questions that, that has to be asked and that we, you know, are soliciting input on is where does this program belong? I think there's a general consensus that the program should have the medical program, uh, the adult use program, and you know probably hemp CBD, which is another topic that you know that, that's ripe for con for discussion. But all of them really are derivatives of the cannabis plant, and they're all they're all you know they all have a similar uh, physiological effect. They they 
Um, they all sort of belong together. They should be manufactured in the same way. They should be uh, distributed in similar or related ways. So it doesn't make sense to have them uh, fragmented. And in speaking with regulators across the country, they've suggested that that, that that should be housed in one entity. Now, whether that entity should be in the Department of Health, Department of Taxation, like in Nevada, in the State Liquor Authority, um, th that's an open question. I think each, each agency has its own culture. And this, this is a bit unique, so, you know, so we are considering all options, including a new office of some sort that could house all three. But, uh, but we really ask people to weigh in on, on their thoughts on that. I think the, the culture is going to drive a lot of how we view this. If it's in tax, it's going to be much more of a revenue priority. If it's in health, then you get into the issues of should we allow flour to be consumed, and, and it, it, it tends to weigh down uh, the industry. If, if you want a social justice goal, which is a big consideration for us with you know, priority licensing and, uh, and you know, affected, disproportionately affected communities getting some of the revenue and investing in growth, then you have a different economic sort of development bend, and all these things have to you know, be... I'm glad you mentioned hemp. I'm, I'm originally from Syracuse, and I was recently up in Binghamton, and the conversation around the farming community there is access to capital, it, the same as it is with, uh, with cannabis and THC. Um, and so I'm curious as to the, the governor's position on assistance with banking. So on banking, uh, you know, a, a couple of months ago now, our, uh, the superintendent uh, for the Department of Financial Services that regulates our banking and, uh, and insurance industry, uh, issued a, um, uh, a memorandum encouraging uh, uh, banks, especially state chartered and, and um, um, uh, local banks, to bank the, uh, the cannabis sector, in particular the industrial hemp and the medical. That's all we have. Right. <laughs> uh, and so what we essentially did, we were the first state after the repeal of the coal memorandum, which what, is what most states relied on in issuing their bank guidance. We were the first one to come out and say, despite the repeal, we are actively, you know, we are going to support the old memorandum and use that as, you know, know your customer rules, and if you do your due diligence, we will, uh, we will encourage you and attempt to sort of protect you to the best of our abilities if you're banking marijuana-related businesses. So we've done that, but banking, banking, I mean, every, every one of these topics is, it deserves its own panel, but... Um, but certain, you know, access to capital is a big issue on, on, on social equity licensing. Banking is an interesting one. You know, you, you get a lot of uh, uh, folks that are proposing sort of uh, closed loop systems or, or kind of blockchain based systems, payment cards. Um, um, so there are a lot of ideas floating around. I don't know how feasible those are in terms of uh, regulatory alternatives, but uh, I think if you, if you, if you build a robust program, the banks, what the banks have told us is that the more robust your program is, the better the compliance is, the better the, the track and trace is of the plants, the more comfortable the banks are in knowing the full, you know, there's no diversion, there's no suspect customers, and the more comfortable they are to bank the industry. So, so I think, you know, uh, I think you need to have a robust program. That's the number one, uh, you know, solution to banking. So can you do me a favor and set the record straight on CBD? Sure, CBD, that's an easy one. <laughs> no, no, I can't. Um, <laughs> I thought that was ironic CBD derived from industrial hemp. Well, no, well, look, CBD is interesting because the way we see it, so we've been canvassing a lot of states and, and speaking to regulators to see how everybody else has done it in various states. And for the most part, you know, people are, are going in, in, in a similar direction and, and there, are, there are some synergies that are lining up. On CBD, there are two solitudes. 
right? There are a number of states like Michigan and California, Ohio, that have effectively said that CBD that's produced and sold outside of their adult use dispensaries or medical marijuana dispensaries is illegal and is subject to the FDA's rules on food additives or dietary, su well, dietary supplements, which the FDA has said CBD is not. And uh, other states like Colorado, Washington, and Oregon have uh, nurtured the uh, industrial hemp and CBD industry, but to an extent where they have no regulation. So nobody has any good manufacturing practices, nobody's enforcing or licensing, except in a very cursory uh, way through their agriculture department, CBD. So you have very different approaches. Um, and so we have to figure out a way to navigate that. We haven't found a solution, but uh, I would say that, that, that a smart way to think about CBD is, um, is that it should be treated at least like a dietary supplement. So you should have good manufacturing practices. You should have labeling that's actually disclosing a per milligram dose, ideally. Uh, you, would, you would have uh, testing that probably should be close to what we do for medical marijuana. So you want to have contaminants, you want to have heavy metals, you want to have you know um, all the all the different sort of molds, um, uh, and then um, you know want you want to know where it's being sold. But but that's yeah that that's that's the current thinking. But you know we're we're, we're canvassing uh, farmers and CBD growers right now. We have an industrial hemp program, but that's where we are. I don't know if that was helpful or not, but. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to go off the script a little bit, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about testing. You know, right now we only have the Department of Health as uh, our official laboratory testing. Once we have legalization, what do you anticipate? Do we do we foresee private testing labs coming into the space as well? Yeah. So, so testing is another interesting issue. Uh, so it turns out, you know, a lot of people characterize our program as being one of the most restrictive in the nation, our medical marijuana program, and it was probably two years ago when it was enacted. We've liberalized it significantly. And some of the things we did restrictively turned out to be really, really positive. You know, anyways, and lab's one of them. So Wadsworth, which is our reference lab in, in New York State, happens to be one of the, the country's best labs. The, you know, the FDA uses us for its own testing on certain things. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we could safely say we have one of the best labs in the country. They do all the testing for medical marijuana pro programs, uh, uh, products. And they have their own methodology. <coughs> and what's happened in a lot of other states is people do, you know, what's called lab arbitrage. So you shop around, and there's competition, and the labs want to give you the results you, you, uh, you're looking for. So everybody will give you a higher THC content, content, and will give you a pass on some of the contaminants potentially. And so, and they'll use different methodologies. So if you test it at two different labs, you almost inevitably get different results. So that's a, a, a problem. Uh, that's that being said, uh, you know there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of demand for lab testing services, and we're starting to hit capacity. Um, so we are interested in getting other labs to 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 enter the market, even for the medical marijuana. We're working with labs. There's there are DEA requirements, which make it difficult sometimes for them to participate. But we'd like to have labs that are what's called ELAP certified, which is a pretty high designation and have them use a methodology that's consistent and have Wadsworth supervise them. So I would say the short answer is yes, we expect that there are going to be uh, labs, but I wouldn't consider them you know, to be mom and pop labs. They'd probably be well-established labs that can perform pretty rigorous testing. And I understand that Wadsworth uh, testing is free right now for the medical program. That's correct. How, is this, how are private labs coming into this uh, under legalization going to affect? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I doubt they'll be free, <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know if we're going to get into the business of regulating prices. Uh, and um, 
I, I think you'd have to ask the industry how they feel about it. Most of the most of the the the, the manufacturers that we speak to uh, wouldn't mind paying a little bit to have quicker turnarounds, maybe. Or although I have to say, Wadsworth been, has been you know truly amazing uh, in their work. Um, but yeah, so I'm not entirely sure how I'd answer that question. They'll probably be charging. Uh, and with respect to the listening tour, so I think there were 15, 17, seven, 17 yes, ma'am, two additional added at the end or something like Correct. that. I'm curious to know what the reception was in those communities, specifically upstate. Uh, it was it, it was it was really interesting. Uh, the, the culturally, it was it, it was really different in every jurisdiction. Uh, I attended maybe a handful, uh, maybe a bit more, and um, you know. Everybody had a different view. Um, you know, Long Island, every, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to characterize all of them. But uh, there was always a presence. There is a serious concern from, the, from the, uh, the substance use disorder community, like the addiction folks. They're really concerned about, uh, about an increase in cannabis use disorder. And we have seen an uptick in cannabis use disorder. We shouldn't kid ourselves, right? People are consuming more cannabis uh, and, uh, and are are having a hard time, it's interfering with their life. So we have to be mindful that a subset of the population is always going to be uh, prone to addiction. Uh, and that's actually one of our, our big concerns because we don't want to criminalize that conduct, but we have to treat it somehow. So we want to, but, but specifically on the listening tours, I think they were extremely well received. The, the media was very, you know, thought that we should do that for every initiative. It's pretty time consuming. And, <laughs> But it was, it was really incredible. People came out, uh, you know, there were hundreds of people at every single one that signed up, uh, and everybody, you know, uh, they raised a lot of issues. Was there a recognition amongst the substance abuse industry of the corresponding reduction in opioid use from the legalization of marijuana in states that have legalized recreational marijuana? You know, there are some folks in the substance use uh, community that are uh, a little bit more open to um, to uh, experimenting with uh, cannabis as a medical assisted treatment. Uh, you know, we recently issued regulations and passed a law that added opioid use disorder as a, uh, a condition for which you can get medical marijuana. But that's, you know, we have population wide studies, but it's still sort of uh, something that's being explored, right? You're, t you're, you're talking about a, a community of folks that, that are vulnerable, that are in, you know, that that are in treatment, so you just have to be careful what drugs you start to administer. Sure. Axel, what about raw flour? Are we ever going to see combustion? Well, so I'd rather think of raw flour as vaping rather than combustion. I wouldn't, you know, recommend that anybody, you know, inhale uh, burning uh, matter. Uh, it's just not good for you. Um, I think... Uh, <laughs> You know, well, in a, uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's just difficult. I mean, I just, I have my opinions, and, and we're discussing it internally. We understand. I could tell you all the pros and cons, you know, certainly, but I, I you know, I just, I can't tell you what the administration's ultimately going to do just because it's still something. We're looking at so many issues right now, and I, you know, I'd love, anybody interested, I'd love to talk, I love talking about this stuff. It's been, uh, it's been my life for a little while now, and there's so many things that you don't think of when you're balancing all these interests, and everything triggers uh, everything else. But, but overall, we understand that the price will uh, you know, be driven down significantly, which was a concern we heard a lot. I think if you can find a way to vape flour and to encourage people to vape rather than you know, combust, that, that would put aside a lot of the concerns with combustion and smoking and an uptick in that. I think in adult use, you can't really, it's difficult to limit um, uh, combustion and the sale of flour because there are populations that are 
really that that's how they consume, and then you would be marginalizing them in, an, in, a, in a legal system, and you would risk disproportionately impacting them in enforcement if you didn't let them, you know, consume the way they're used to consuming. Combustion, or excuse me, vaporization requires mechanisms and, and certain things that are costly and, and cost prohibitive to certain communities. Combustion is the cheapest form of, of uh, ingestion method as, as far as I understand. My understanding is vape pens can get pretty cheap, <laughs> especially if you're vaping, you know, if you're vaping flour, you can reuse it and it's, it's I don't know if it's cost prohibitive, but. I think I, I recently read a study uh, that, that said that there actually wasn't a correlation between COPD and, uh, and combusting uh, raw flour. I mean, look, it's, it's just probably not a good idea. Uh, thankfully, what we've seen in mature uh, markets is, is, a is just a diminishing of the, of the flower segment. It's down to 30%, I think, or something in Colorado. Um, people are turned. Edibles. What? There's a lot of edibles in those, in those markets. A lot of edibles, a lot of vaping, a lot of oil. Oil, oil pens tend, tend to be the, 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 the most popular. Uh, it's just more convenient. It, you know, it stores. It's easy. Well, I think I think we're ready for some questions. Thank you. Nice panel. Thanks, Christian. Um, my question is about extraction. What are we thinking of? What are you thinking of for manufacturing? Which is going to be a very significant piece of the business. I mean, we're talking mostly about dispensaries, but that that will go away. You talking about manufacturing no. and licensing? I'm at, the question is not licensing. What are we thinking about for land use, for building use, for location, for licensing? Jerry, you want to field that on land use in terms of uh, manufacturing? Sure. sure. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was thinking of when I was uh, thinking of this presentation is that one of the real questions is uh, when we talk about zoning, we, in the city of New York, we don't think about areas that are zoned for agricultural use. Mm -hmm. And certainly in some of the upstate communities, uh, you see that there'll be large areas uh, that are zoned for agriculture. Well, manufacturing use. is not agriculture. And that's what I think New York State needs to focus on in a very uh, clear way, because that's going to be the future of our industry. Well, one, one comment on that uh, is that you, you, you're growing a vegetable product probably uh, in a very large warehouse. But I'm say. not growing a many, I, I buy my biomass and I make my products in legal states and I want to do that in New York. How are you going to enable that? Well. And especially in New York City. If, if you don't, in New York City it may not be possible. You may not have the space. We have kitchens. It's the same as having a kitchen. Uh, I think that what's going to happen is that it's got to be looked at carefully. Well, it need, that's the point. That is, my, that is my point exactly. I think you're in land use, and that's not taking over buildings and, or building specific facilities. But I would like to ask you, Axel, what sure. you're thinking of. Well, so, you know, um, what am I thinking of? What were we thinking of? So we think that if you're, first there's, there's, there's uh, cannabis as food, and then there's cannabis as extract. So if you're talking about manufacturing and you want to sell seeds, and you want to extract seeds and put them in granola bars, then all you need is a C20 kitchen. And I think you're going to be fairly able to do that. You could do it already now if you have irradiated seeds, and they're not, you know, they're not viable. 
So you could probably do the same thing if you want to take the baby leaves off the cannabis plant and put them in a salad. What if I'm buying biomass and I want to make tinctures or pills or things like that? Right. Well, so, so currently federal law prohibits the transfer of cannabis across state lines, so you wouldn't be able to bring it in from Kentucky. Well, I would buy it here. Okay. I mean, I'd buy it from cultivators. They sell it. Yep. They certainly, well, they will. And I'm assuming you're talking about THC products, not CBD? Talking about full spectrum. I don't think that there are, as far as we know in research, there are more than 525 different genetics that are ascribed to cannabis. And we don't know very much about them in this country. Although in Israel, in uh, the Czech Republic, in Spain, we're getting a lot of very significant data. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I would just say you'd probably want good manufacturing practices. You'd want GMP. I know what I want, but what do you want? Because no, no. you're going to license me if I you, come to I meant, New York. I meant as a society, collectively, what we would want, what you would want, what one would want, yes. <laughs> is GMP, right? Absolutely. So, on, you know, right? So That's good. That's the bare minimum. At the, exactly. You'd want good testing, yeah. and you'd want good labels, right? Um, so. But uh, where am I going to house my facility? Where can I buy a building, and have <laughs> manufacturing under legalization in New York? Well. I mean, I don't know that you have, I, I'll defer to, to Jerry on land use, but, uh, but I don't know that you have that many restrictions. It depends, again, what you're looking to do. If you're extracting with CO2, you're going to need, you know, I don't know, uh, what do you need, 20,000 square feet? That's, not, that's probably more than what you need, right? Not at and all. Then you not, could, a, not at all. But I, I'm not saying what, what I want. I'm saying what the industry wants. We want to be able to manufacture here. Right. We buy our biomass here. So I, what this really is, please think about this very carefully because this is a major uh, direction of our, our business. And it's going to be an extraordinary revenue generator and an extraordinary tax, uh, not tax, but research generator. And research, there's a dollar amount that for every dollar we spend in research, I think there's $27 that we get back in New York City and New York State. So it's a very complex and very delicious problem. Please solve it for us in a way that's wonderful. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't? Oh, because of her? All right. My name is Paul Gilman. I'm with the Greens. And to piggyback on what you were, I have a lot to say, but to piggyback on what you were saying, we want to see a strong homegrown provision in which we have like way more than six plants. Six plants is not enough. The New York State Greens proposed 99 plants or less, not for sale, not for trade. We want to undercut like the neurosis caused by the big profit industry where all kinds of corruption will have. We feel like if there's strong homegrown, there'll be less corruption. And as far as taxing goes, oh, and in New York City, there's community gardens, there's agriculture, a lot of people. I'm from Queens. We have backyards. You can grow like five or six plants in your backyard, really nice ones. You have basements. You can do hydroponics. So we want to make sure that the only regulations we want to see there and in the whole industry is no GMO. No pesticides, no um, additives, and no THC manipulations the way the tobacco industry manipulates, um, you know, whatever. So, and, and, uh, and so taxing, too, is like for all products in New York State, it's more or less 4%. If you're going to make 
like something out of oil, like plastics are all made out of oil. It's all 4%. Textiles are taxed at 4%. Paper is taxed at 4%. So we don't want a special marijuana hemp tax on these products. They should be taxed at the same rate or even less as a way of getting this new industry started. Okay? You know, it's a form of subsidy. Taxed at 2 or 3% or 1%. Okay? So that's, I'll leave it at that for now. Oh, and one last thing for Mr. Um, Niblock. You're talking about um, marijuana tourism. I agree, as, as it becomes normal throughout the whole country, there'll be less tourism, no need, no need to come to New York for pot. But right now, New Hampshire has extra low liquor taxes, so they have like a little mini tourist flow. Like whenever I go to New Hampshire, I try to buy a couple of bottles of tequila. <laughs>
you know, whatever the, that minimal percentage of THC is. So we clearly have a market that's already happening. When we talk about producing uh, extractions in New York for whatever purpose they are, we're going to have two sizes of industry, the same as we will in the, in the marijuana industry, in the cannabis industry. We're going to have homegrown, we're going to have kids from Williamsburg, kids from Long Island City going into those marvelous spaces in uh, those group kitchens and making product. And they're going to want to get that product to market. And somebody's going to want to come in and somebody's going to want to see if that kitchen is clean. Somebody's going to want to see whether or not they're storing chemicals or storing any combustibles in the process of manufacturing any of the products they're going to be making. You guys have to have a good scheme for this. You can't fumfer around with it, right? It's trial and error could really mess this industry up. So with all due respect to land use, you got to know what extraction is. You got to know what goes into extraction in order to legislate it, in order to regulate it. You got to know what goes into a grow house in order to regulate it. So please make sure you're talking to, to real professionals about this and you're not filling in the blanks about what this dynamic industry is doing in every segment of it. Please be very, very conscious of that. Um, in regards to insurances about the in industry, um, I sell insurance that is out outside of New York now. Um, it, auto insurance, you can't cross state lines. Federal um, monies are not being, you know, the banks are not funding the industry, so people are having a hard time getting insurance because you can't just walk with a suitcase of cash and pay your insurance bill. Um, it, are there going to be any regulations as far as what insurance is needed and provided um, as somebody who works for an insurance agency, um, I'm being asked these questions all the time. Uh, I can provide those insurances, but it's kind of like the Wild West, and there doesn't seem to be any real discussion about insurances in general, product liability, um, especially in New York. I mean, I do have CBD clients, but as far as um, the states that are legal, they, you know, New Jersey's going to be legal, but what if that car goes over the, the, the Lincoln Tunnel? Does that make the, the car not, you know, that has marijuana in it? Like, where, where, do, where does that kind of, where is that going? Has anybody discussed that at all as far as insurance is concerned? And wh um, where that might be provided or needed? Or what the, um, what the regulations are going to be for that? Well, I mean, from a criminal perspective, across straight state lines, if you're in possession of something that's lawful in your state, but you transport it into a state where it's not lawful, you're subject to criminal prosecution. If you, you know, have gun carry license in Colorado and you come here to New York and you have a concealed gun, regardless of whether you're licensed in Colorado, you're you're in a heap of trouble here in New York. So, yeah. Well, no. Yeah, no question. So it's still going to be federally legal, right? You'll be breaking federal law by transporting it over the state border. Well, there's 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 a federal there's a federal states' rights act that's currently pending, right? So you know that that legislation would solve the issue, although that seems to be tied up right now. But there is an act pending in Congress that's jointly sponsored by both Democrats and Republicans that will allow states 
that pass regulations to make it recreationally lawful in their state that the federal government will not interfere, which will allow the banking industries to bank within that state and solve the problems. That's, that's the real issue that needs to be addressed. I, I actually have a question, I think. Um, so I've been following this industry for four years now, full-time as an investor, so I, that's what I do. I don't do something like I don't have a lot law practice on the side. I, I invest in the space. Uh, and I've been following what's going on here. And we've kind of, it's, it's evolved, you know. It's, it's, it, it, we've come from a stigma position where we, we were talking about medical, and then we got into recreational or adult use. And then we started thinking about uh, the uh, pesticides and testing, and then we started being concerned about the social impact, social, social justice issues. We're starting to see now on the social justice side that <clears throat> we can say nice things about how we're going to do this, but if there's no money available to these people who, who we're enabling to have licenses, they're not going to be able to perform on that. And then the latest issue to really come up is social, con or, uh, social consumption. We're starting to see this now in Colorado and California. Uh, Nevada's talking about it. That's a really thorny issue. It's going to come up. And there was no discussion here on the panel tonight. You've got a limited you know, time and expertise and stuff here. So my question really, after all that, I promised I wasn't going to give a speech of my long interview is, is about social consumption. You know, what, what are we considering? What are the impacts on? What are we going to do about where people are consuming? They're consuming on, on the street now, right? So. That's a great question. We talked about this a little bit offline, but not uh, not during the panel. So, um, Councilman, perhaps you can answer this uh, with respect to the city. Uh, has there been thought around social consumption? I mean, especially because of the way that we live outside of New York, uh, the rest of the state. I think it's uh, it's going to continue to be a, a thorny conversation. Um, the way NYPD enforces. For instance, in, in, I guess I would say on this subject, it, it, marijuana is already legal in some communities <laughs> to smoke. In other communities, it's illegal to smoke. And you could obviously end up in prison over it. Um, I would say as the state regulates this, these are the conversations that we'll continue to obviously have. And, and, and the NYPD, at least under the work that we're doing, um, you know, we are pushing them to, to, to ensure that communities such as my community aren't the ones who will continue to feel the biggest brunt of the impact of enforcement uh, in cases of, 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 of usage. So I don't know if I'm answering the question the, the way you... So uh, the only example of social use consumption that I'm aware of is in Denver, where they've issued two social consumption licenses, uh, the first of which is uh, the coffee joint, I think it's called. Okay. And that model is that uh, you're allowed to bring your uh, previously purchased right. uh, cannabis, mm -hmm. uh, which is not flour. Mm -hmm. I believe it's only edibles. Mm -hmm. I don't even think you can okay, vape edibles, because right. of the Clean Air Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and you can bring your, your okay. uh, cannabis to the coffee joint purchase you know, non-THC mm -hmm. products there mm -hmm. and hang out and consume. Is that the sort of model where you wouldn't purchase on site? Uh, I think that Jersey, as opposed to um, a dispensary with an on-site consumption, which I think is what New Jersey's current bill looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, too early to, I don't want to speak out of terms, too early to determine. And I think, you know, largely as the state continues to have this conversation, I, I don't want to speak out of terms on it and give you um, an answer on where the city is at or where we are moving on this particular 
um, matter. But what I would say is that from a social justice aspect, you know, we want to continue to ensure that um, our communities are treated justly. What we can't have continue is what we now have continue. We can't have communities where are not enforcing state laws uh, on one side of the Hudson and, on, and in another area. So I have a if I have a client in Long Island who gets arrested by a police officer, that client is in jail on bail, mm -hmm. and that client had that same marijuana cigarette in in the city, he wouldn't be prosecuted. It's a state law. Prosecutors can't enforce laws within their community differently than are being done in other communities, which is the reason why we're going to have the, the legislation. Now, I, I thought that one, at least one of the bills, the MRTA, proposed for public consumption to be reduced to a, tra to a violation, which essentially is a non-criminal offense. And then communities locally would make decisions about whether or not they would have, be allowed to have what, what I guess we call coffee shops or, or locations where you can consume marijuana. And that would be dependent upon the local, the, the, the local area, the local community, whether or not they wanted to pass zoning regulations to allow that within their community. But I think there's good reason and good measure to not have public consumption of marijuana, especially burnables. And I, I would say look to the alcohol regulations. There really are a lot of parallels. Just because alcohol is lawful, to, to use if you're 21 and over, it doesn't mean that you're allowed to consume alcohol on a public street in an open container or while driving in a car, right? So just because it's being legalized or the recreational use is being legalized doesn't mean that we're allowed to consume it in any manner that we, we choose. It's a matter of establishing a moral compass and that moral compass is pointing towards regulation. Now the issue is gonna become the answer to all of these questions, mm -hmm. which are mm -hmm. social issues. And let me just add back to that, you know, it's funny, we were at a press conference yesterday and marijuana was clear. I mean, I was with the police commissioner earlier. We certainly all were sitting there and smelled it. But, um, but, but you know, one of the, the issues we was running around, we, we, we discuss is, what if this was in South Jamaica, right? <laughs> you know, individuals would have been incarcerated over that. So I, I think as we have the conversation around um, social consumption, no one is saying that we want people just smoking everywhere. And I think part of what the state is doing by regulating, it allows the city to then come in and obviously have a conversation with local communities uh, around what do they want to see. And I know he discussed the EULA process, which is a very tedious, I used to chair the zoning committee for the city council. I can tell you it's not an easy process. And you can find nimbyism sometimes in, in part of those conversations. So it's a very touchy <laughs> um, situation, but I think um, in terms of the way, once again, uh, enforcement is done for certain communities, uh, certainly uh, the impacts are different. I can weigh in on that. Do you want to just two say? So, so I think uh, it's interesting. I think there are two issues, right? One is social consumption spaces where you'd go and consume, and those that's a much more difficult, I think, we identified it. But I wanted to just touch on what you said. So the other issue is public consumption. So we have two sets of rules when it comes to current uh, substances that we regulate and decided where people can use them. One's tobacco and one's alcohol. You can't consume alcohol on a, on, a, on a street, but you can smoke a cigarette when you walk down the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, we're, we've been talking internally a lot about this. And it's a fascinating question that I think everybody has, uh, should have an opinion on. So why is it that we can't have a beer open on the sidewalk? 
I'd say it's probably because if you consume a beer on the sidewalk, you might be unruly, right? And that public sort of uh, consumption of alcohol leads to unruly behavior. And cigarettes, we allow because we don't think that anybody's going to get unruly with cigarettes. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, is, is vaping, you know, cannabis more akin to alcohol or more akin to cigarettes? So that's one of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves when it comes to public consumption. And then... Right. Well, so we know where you stand. <laughs> There's also a detection issue, right? So if, if vaping publicly is an issue, how do you know if somebody's vaping CBD or they're vaping a tobacco product or they're vaping THC and you have Fourth Amendment issues? That, that are going to be evident because a police officer observing somebody vaping something doesn't have reasonable suspicion to necessarily believe that that person is vaping a, a product that is not lawfully to, lawful to be consumed. So there's also the Fourth Amendment issues that have to be looked at from a standpoint. You don't want to create laws or statutes that impose obligations on police officers that they cannot uh, enforce. I completely agree. So, so it's actually not as most people react. Uh, interesting, you know, the preliminary reaction is, oh yeah, of course, we're going to prohibit people smoking, you know, smoking a joint walking down the street. But when you think about it, it's actually the framework's a little bit more complicated than mm -hmm. that. To the to the to the point to your point. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I'd add is, is there a difference between someone vaping, either nicotine or cannabis, while walking down the street, and someone smoking? Uh, combusting a very smelly joint and walking down the street or sitting, you know, however, whatever the, the Clean Indoor Air Act distance is from the entrance of an office and sitting there and smoking a very big joint that stinks up, you know, the whole area. Is that, is that something that's a, a, some kind of nuisance, you know, for some people don't enjoy the smell uh, of cannabis and some people have reactions to uh, smoke. Mm -hmm. And so is that the basis for enforcement? But we don't do that from t with tobacco. So, so how do you make those distinctions? So that, that, I think this is a really interesting conversation. And the other piece of that that's interesting is both, if you look at the alcohol and you look at marijuana, both come from what was originally barred by statute and prior to the 21st Amendment, you weren't allowed to have alcohol at all. So what you have is societal norms. You have people within society who are of the belief that the decriminalization of alcohol was not, a, was not proper. Believe it or not, those people still exist, right? Um, so you have the same thing with marijuana. You take marijuana from a, a uh, illegal market, you put it into a controlled market, you still have aspects of our society at our core whose social or moral compass hasn't been fully moved, and now you're putting it in front of them. It's kind of like we don't care what you do in your own kitchen and your own living room, but don't do it in front of me and my child as we're walking down the street because you've made it legal. Okay, it's okay for you to do it legally. Just don't do it in front of my child. So I think it's also a, like a moral compass issue. And I think we've we've obviously come farther with alcohol than we're going to get with marijuana in the next 80 or 90 years. It'll take a long time to get there. But I would agree with you that the burning of a, a combustible, a joint or that's emitting a significantly you know pungent odor, which potentially people will perceive to have consequences to people who inhale it, or secondhand smoke, or depending on their education level on it, will be more offended by it. You know? Axel, one thing I, I keep forgetting to ask um, is, you know, when we pass legalization, and we're in the rulemaking period, which roughly is about a year or so in most states, uh, some state models have medical operating filling that need for adult use. Other states like Massachusetts have an absurd gifting program. What do you think New York's going to do? 
I'm, I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. You mean, so before it's legal to... No, no, no. After legalization, yeah, we pass our bill. Before it's legal for, to have adult use. Until the, uh, before the licensing scheme and the, the rules and regulations come out. So there's probably a period of time in between, sure. roughly a year in most states, uh, that it's legal, but there's no, there's no licensing structure for commercialization. So in some states, medical moves over and fills that void and operates in the adult use market until the rules and regs fill that. In other states like Massachusetts, you have gifting where there's no, there's no formal operators. So that's, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, we, haven't, we haven't made a decision on that. I think what you're doing there, you're going to have two um, different questions you have to ask yourself, right? So if you have the current medical players enter the adult use market a year to 18 or 24 months because it takes a year to do the regs, but then you have to do the licenses, the review of the licenses and issue the awards. So you're looking, you know, realistically, the MRTA says 18 to 24 months. So you're looking at a couple of years from the date of the passage of the act. That gives, that would give the current medical marijuana cannabis producers two years to enter the market. So that would satisfy some demand, but I think you might have some folks uh, in the social justice community that might ask themselves whether you're going to have small growers and whether you're going to have a socially mm -hmm. diverse mm -hmm. set of businesses that are going to be able to thrive if they're two years behind their competitors. So a very difficult question, but I, I can answer that. Uh, given the landscape of the current medical providers. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna comment on the current, I like looking at current medical providers, but <laughs> you know. Oh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. Yeah. Other, otherwise, I'm just saying that they don't reflect a social justice. Oh, I see, I see what you're saying, okay. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but one answer, one answer that, you know, one thing we do believe uh, would be smart is growing the medical program uh, before adult use. So one of the things that's come out of these uh, listening sessions and that the medical community has, has uh, uh, advocated for is, you know, getting folks that are probably consuming a significant amount of cannabis for really an underlying medical condition potentially. They're self-medicating. I think, you know, there's probably a, f a fair number of people that are doing that. And getting them into the medical program is probably a good way to also give them wraparound services like behavioral health counseling and also harm reduction strategies. You know, you know, you could use edibles, diminish your doses, um, and and so so I think it would be, it would make sense to find ways to grow. We're looking at options that may be available to grow the medical program in the interim. So get people in and 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 get some of that demand met that way. I think that that could be a good interim solution. Hi. <clears throat> Got the mic, finally. Um, talking about the clean and, uh, social consumption and the Clean Indoor Air Act, this has been a focus of mine for several years. And one of my concerns about the MRTA was that it made the system subject to the Clean Indoor Air Act. Now, my understanding is that because of the preemption doctrine, the Clean Indoor Air Act sets a, um, a minimum that a local government can pass regulations governing indoor smoking that can be no less restrictive than the state, which um, will make indoor consumption functionally impossible in New York City, probably in most municipalities. So going from there, the, uh, my question is, what's necessary to maximize local autonomy uh, under, this, under the state law? What uh, changes, statutory changes might be necessary to allow local governments 
uh, to regulate according to their own cultural and social norms that are particular to them. Is that going to require um, some kind of special carve-out? Like I would uh, suggest that the, clean indoor, the system should not be subject to the Clean Indoor Air Act, or there should be a special carve-out, or there should be a separate form of uh, state preemption doctrine specific to cannabis consumption. But across the board, for all the questions, uh, what's the way to maximize local autonomy, the least restrictive state uh, control that uh, also makes it difficult to, um, makes it, doesn't allow the local governments to regulate the businesses out of existence. Do you anticipate that there's going to need, there must be some other change in the New York code to maximize local autonomy? Well, I could just speak from a New York City perspective. I mean, I think at the state level, you have a sizable amount of state officials who represent New York City, um, including the Speaker of the Assembly, who represents uh, parts of the Bronx. Um, and I think from the State Senate's perspective as well, I think you'll have a lot of New York City voices in that conversation. Um, I can't speak for the entire state because obviously the governor <laughs> would have more of that, but we would hope that, and I, I believe a lot of the New York City um, individuals on the state senate and both on the assembly side will certainly be pushing for the interests of New York City and the way things are carved out. Um, so I guess for, upstate is obviously much different than New York City, <laughs> downstate, um, but I would assume that that's where a lot of these conversations would have be had. Thank you, everyone. Uh, quick question about public education initiatives. Mm. Um, I was recently uh, at a presentation by uh, Manhattan DA Cy Vance. He did a phenomenal, mm -hmm. he's rather his office is responsible for a phenomenal report. I'm sure you're all aware. Um, he made a lot of great suggestions based on other states and their recreational uh, experiences with legalization. And specifically, he's, he, or rather the, the office, talked about the importance of educating the public legalization, or rather education before legalization. And the question I have is, it's not just about families and children, but it's about law enforcement, it's about mental health professionals, it's about educators, it's about you know, general initiatives. And the question is, where does that come from? Where does that start? Does it start with the mayor's office? Does it start with the governor? Does it start with the, uh, the folks regulating the program? I mean, it would be my hope that, I hate to keep taking all the questions, but, uh, but, <laughs> but I, I'm, I would assume in the advocacy world, there are a lot of organizations who are, who are gonna be at the table around this. Um, and I would hope that even as legalization happens, once again, it's going to be a nice uh, windfall, at least we, we perceive, that comes to the state, comes to the city, uh, and we should be figuring out creative ways to make sure some of that funding certainly goes to education, prevention towards addiction, um, educating our young people in schools that, okay, it is legal, but doesn't mean you, you know, need to be over-consuming, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that that's at least something we would be interested in. But that has but, been something that has come up a lot 
um, and, and, and from people who don't believe legalization should happen as well, I think education has been something both sides have been speaking about. I think Martha's suggesting that this needs, the education needs to happen in advance. And, okay. and I think you're, you're talking about funding. I fear a lot of that work is going to happen in the nonprofit sector yeah, and in the private yeah, sector. Yeah, that's what I think. Nonprofit sector. <laughs> Um, up in Westchester, and I, I haven't started prescribing it yet, and part of why I haven't done it is because when I call my malpractice folks and said, what, will, what does this mean? They said, well, we'll protect you if it's an issue of malpractice, negligence, or whatever, but if the feds come after you, we're not, we're not there for you. But what I wanted to just support what this lady was saying about education, mm -hmm. uh, which is that I've, I've tried to... Um, uh, inform myself about this issue in the last few years. I've gone to Bethesda to the big research forum they had over there a few years ago. Um, I went to the um, Como's forums. I went to one in New Rochelle. Um, I've spoken to people in my community, talked to people. Um, I've worked at Rikers, so I know what it's like in, in, you know, in terms of um, the young men, the young people who have suffered under this. Um, but I have to say that for the, uh, for the most part, most of my colleagues who are doctors, who are physicians, are totally uninformed about this mm -hmm. and not behind it. And I'm talking, I'm not, I'm talking about people who may be doctors of color are, and, and also the, the, the folks in the churches. They're not understanding this and they're not hearing about these forums, they're not hearing about this. The education is not there. And um, you know, when I diagnose somebody with cannabis abuse, when someone comes into our clinic and we're looking at this person and deciding whether this is a, we should put that on the list of diagnosis, all we need to know is that he's smoking cannabis. I mean, it's not like we're gonna go through the whole list. We need to know, are you smoking cannabis? And that kind of uh, mentality is gonna have to change for doctors as well as uh, for, for communities. Thank you. Uh, two more questions. So to build on Martha's question about education, you, you, Councilman, you mentioned advocacy groups. I've been doing uh, education around cannabis topics for the last four years. I'm proud to say I've educated thousands of New Yorkers on a variety of topics. I have some questions for the panel, one of which is I heard a lot about economic equity and inclusion. The number one question I get from people is how do I transition from the underground market mm -hmm. to the legal market? There was some talk about you know eliminating the underground market. 
the only way to do that is to include those folks and create safe pathways. And I didn't really hear much of that outside of looking at equity programs, which I think are a start but don't go far enough. So I would like to see a lot more of that. I heard some talk about child protective services and medical patients. Didn't hear anything about immigrants or uh, visitors or anything like that and protecting them if they're medical patients. Uh, as far as consumption versus impairment when it comes to driving, I heard a lot about testing for consumption and not much about actually testing for impairment. And if you're a medical patient, again, and you know, if you have to be consuming daily, regularly, you know, maybe you're impaired if you're not consuming. So well, how do we protect those people and how do we safeguard you know, people of color who are traditionally policed differently on all things cannabis from you know, getting taken advantage of and marginalized and destroyed and you know, enslaved uh, through these uh, criminal justice injustices you're correct on the drug use issue and impairment, and very often we find in operating a motor vehicle while ability impaired by drug offense, that very often the defense is their failure to take their medications, if they were taking it with the appropriate level of dosage after a period of time, makes them a better driver. You're 100% correct about that. But how do you detect whether an individual is impaired by a drug such as marijuana will only come from validated studies of the impairing effects of the drugs. So, you know, back in the 1980s, out in California was the start of validated studies for what are now called standardized field side sobriety tests, or SFSTs. And we now have three validated tests, the walk and turn, one leg stand, and horizontal gaze nystagmus. Why? Because the government was able to dose people with alcohol and see how they performed. The government hasn't done that in a, in a market that's not regulated, that's, that's illegal. So that's, that's coming, right? Uh, however, here's the problem with that. Most of the studies that have been done so far show that it's just not true. That marijuana doesn't necessarily, based upon quantification levels, impair in a person's ability to operate a motor vehicle. Certainly doesn't do it the way alcohol does it. So it's just not that simple an answer to be able to say. That's why I said before, the best way to measure whether or not somebody's ability to operate a motor vehicle was impaired is look at the driving. The individual was involved in a car accident, for example. The individual was driving too slow as a classic indicia, right? Um, as opposed to speeding, because speeding isn't even an indication of alcohol. It's neither. It's neither alcohol nor drugs. It has no impact. But the, you know, it's the, it, it was those validation studies, by the way, that not only created the three, the three part tests, but also establish a protocol for police officers to use nationally to recognize an operator who is impaired by, by alcohol. And for example, in, the, in phase one, which is the operation phase, they're trained to look for 28 separate pre-stop clues to see if that person is impaired by alcohol. Why? Because we dosed people with alcohol, and then we observe them to see how it affects their ability. The government hasn't done that yet, and, and, I, and, I, and I agree with you. It's the same issue with the education. The better answer is educate first, right? But the reality is, because this cult of cult, this change, this moral compass of society is changing, the reason why the doctors are reluctant is because it's illegal, right? So there's, there's this moral compass inside of us that says it is illegal. It's only after it becomes legal that the culture of society is going to change and start to move over. And I would suggest that the education, by the way, has to come within your peer groups. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Like the law enforcement, you know, it's got to be the sheriffs, it's got to be the lieutenants, it's got to be the, the 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 precinct commanders that train and get their officers certified on on DREs so that they have on call officers who could be called to the scene to do an evaluation. So where should that training come from? It doesn't come from the governor's office. It's going to come from within our professional communities, right? So, for example, I do lectures on educating attorneys on how to handle driving while ability impaired by drugs offenses and driving while ability impaired by alcohol offenses. So the, the teachers have to teach the teachers, the doctors have to teach the doctors, the police officers have to teach the police officers until we see that, that, that change in society. Mike, I appreciate your question about uh, vulnerable popula populations uh, like immigrants. I am myself an immigrant, mm -hmm. and I wish I had thought it to, to bring that up. I'm curious as to you know, whether or not uh, marijuana infractions are deportable offenses and how we treat that in New York City. Well, we're a sanctuary city is the answer. So the NYPD says they don't communicate with federal officials on any of these matters. Um, but let me, let me add to, the, to, the, to, to some of the things you said, and I think that um, there should be some entity as this as legalization happens that is specifically tasked with just focusing in on this issue and the issues around equity, the issues of inclusion, of making sure communities really have access to to uh, to the industry. So I think that that would be to me something that we would be interested in seeing as this grows. I mean, we just did something similar within the TLC where we created an Office of Inclusion to deal just specifically with the issue of ride hills and African Americans and communities of color not being able to get a cab. Maybe there could be some entity that's within, you know, I, don't, I guess you're not gonna do state liquor authority, but part of the conversation needs to be that, and I think that should be in itself, like I said, in an office that just works to make sure that these things are happening. And lastly, I'll add that, you know, advocacy groups, if you're doing education, you know, I think support to organizations that are doing this work on the ground already is gonna be critical in its success. So I don't anticipate that there'll be, uh, as much as I love government, I don't anticipate they'll be on Beach 56th Street in Far Rockaway. So we need to make sure that we are arming local communities and local organizations within those communities with the resources to carry out. You know, you wanna apply for a permit. How do we make sure that that happens? But there has to be a local entity that really takes charge and it's for it to work for our local communities. Otherwise, we'll be singing, you know, we've been down this road before. Unfortunately, we're uh, past time, so we'll have to end the event uh, now, but um, I'm sure uh, you can ask questions uh, to the panelists if they have a second. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for coming, and thank you all for uh, participating. <laughs>